Well, good morning. Ooh, nice. That was, you guys are with it this morning. Well, uh, today we are talking about the seventh commandment. Um, those of you who are doing the math and you're familiar with the Ten Commandments are probably already not super excited because today we are talking about the sexual ethic of the kingdom of God. Everybody's favorite thing to talk about in church, right? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. It's like sex and money. Those are the things everybody is sick for, right? Um, but today we're diving into this topic. And as you might remember if you've been here for a while, first off, we want to remind ourselves that we're framing this. These are the sexual, these are the ethics of the kingdom of God. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we are looking at vow language that's meant to remind us of, of a wedding ceremony. It tells us what does it mean? What does it mean when we say, I covenant to God, that I commit to live in the way of Jesus? This is the place that we look. These are the ethics for which a life in the kingdom of God is built on. And I want to say this before we go any farther. Oftentimes in the church, when we talk about these topics, one of two things happens. The conversation is framed around shame and guilt and fear. Or on the other side, the conversation is cavalier and made light of, and sometimes even crass. Today, we are going to strive to give this topic the weight and respect that it's due without letting fear, shame, or guilt be the measure of the way that we talk about this. Now, this is something we have to choose to do together when we engage a weighty topic. Sound good? So today, we're going to wrestle with the ethics of the kingdom. We're going to wrestle with them in an endeavor to be faithful to the word of God. Amen? All right, I'm going to read five words. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, says this. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. God, we come to you today asking that your love and that your name would be made we come to you today as we do every week, saying the only name that matters today is the name of Jesus. And I ask that anything that is from you would echo in our minds and hearts, that we would be brought into alignment with your word. Anything of my ideas, my thoughts, my opinions would be revealed so it could be rejected. We are here today for the name of Jesus. And in a few minutes when we leave, let the name of Jesus be the name of our mind. Have you guys ever heard the term analysis paralysis? Anybody heard that term? Okay, okay, a few of us. Analysis paralysis is that feeling you get when you go to a new restaurant and you open up the menu and there are a hundred things on the menu that all sound good, so you can't decide, right? Um, so what do you do? You look at the menu, you tell the waiter to come back five times, and then you order the burger because you know it's not going to be disappointing to you, right? Um, you make the same decision, you make it every restaurant. Um, analysis paralysis is really common. Um, it happens to us in a variety of areas of life. It can happen in something as trivial as a restaurant or as complicated as who to date or which job to take or which city to move to when there are so many options that it's hard to pick out the good ones. So sometimes we don't make a decision at all. We just keep making the same decision that we've been making because we don't want to risk the outcome being worse than the one that is right now. 
Or there is uh, the kissing cousin of analysis paralysis, which is FOMO. How many of you have heard of FOMO? All right, how many of you raised your hand because you didn't want to be left out? Yeah, FOMO, fear of missing out. Listen, I think pretty much everybody has experienced FOMO before. Have you ever wondered how many, like, uh, 2 a.m. Taco Bell runs in college were fueled by FOMO, not by the need for, like, a Crunchwrap Supreme at 2 a.m.? You just wanted to be the, you didn't want to be the one friend that didn't go along, right? Because this is the one time, this is the one time something really cool is going to happen at Taco Bell at 2 a.m., and you don't want to miss the inside joke tomorrow. So you go to Taco Bell, even though you've got an exam at 7 a.m. the next morning, you spend your last $5 on an experience. It's not based on a true story. Why do you ask? Um, (laughs) FOMO is presented to us all the time. In fact, we are marketed to with the fear of missing out all the time consistently. If you've been watching March Madness, which my March Madness dreams were crushed yesterday because I'm a Duke fan, but it's okay. Your condolences, you can send them to my house. It'll be fine. Um, But if you watch March Madness, then you've been told from the beginning, if you want to be cool, if you want to live a meaningful life, if you want adventure, if you don't want to miss out on that, buy a Chevy truck, right? If you want to, uh, if you, if you want to fit in, if you don't want to miss out on everything life has to offer, then you've got to eat at Burger King. Over and over and over again, we are sold things based on this fear of missing out. There is this opportunity that's in front of you. There's this experience that's in front of you. There is a pleasure. There is, a, there is something you can attain. And if you don't do this thing, then you can miss out on it. Then you won't live the life everyone else lives. You won't have the experience everyone else has. I, I think this analysis paralysis and this fear of missing out are connected to a common misconception that we have as humans. And this is not a modern misconception. It's not, part, it's not only part of our modern culture. I think it's been part of every culture that I've studied that I've learned about throughout history, but it's this. It's the misconception that fulfilled desire leads to fulfillment. That fulfilled desire leads to a fulfilled life. So don't miss out. Vacation in this place. Purchase this thing. Marry this person. Date around. Make sure you know all of the options. Explore every option fully. Have every experience that you can because you don't want to miss out. If you want a full life, if you want to be fulfilled, then you've got to experience everything that you desire. So some of us chase down every desire Or some of us never change our desire for fear that the one we choose will be worse than the one we have. We never make a different decision. Now here's where we step into tumultuous waters. It seems to me that there is no place in the modern world where this misconception is more prevalent or more dangerous than in the idea of sex and sexuality. We live in a world in which we are continually told that every desire should be fulfilled. You need to figure out who you're compatible with because you need to know that your desires are going to be met. You need to explore every interest. 
because you need to know what your desires actually are. Your desires are all good things, so explore those desires. We're continually given this message. As long as your desires are between consenting adults, then it's fine. Pursue your desires. Find fulfillment, because if you miss out on any sort of desire, then you miss out on fulfillment. And for the record, the church hasn't really helped this, because we, we as the church, have basically said, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, just don't do it. And feel bad for wanting to, because it'll ruin your life. I want to propose to you this morning that the ethic of the kingdom of God says to a world in which we believe fulfillment comes from fulfilled desire, the ethic of the kingdom says fulfillment comes from faithfulness. A fulfilled life is a life of faithfulness. Now, we're looking at the seventh commandment, uh, do not commit adultery, which seems pretty obvious. Um, This seems like something most people can agree on. Uh, Most people, no matter their political or cultural leanings, can agree that you should not step outside of marriage. Cheating is generally looked down upon in most cultures throughout most of history. Um, And it's certainly in today's culture, we tend to agree that if you're going to make a marriage commitment to someone, that you should be faithful to that marriage commitment. And it seems like that's pretty obvious. Why should this be in the core ethics of the kingdom of God? It seems like this is obvious, and it seems like it's something that primarily affects a specific group of people. I mean, sure, we know that there are certain things you're not supposed to do as followers of Jesus, but it's a big gray area. And I mean, as long as it's not cheating... Then, then, then that's where the boundary is, right? The, the ethic is about cheating on your spouse. So as long as I'm not cheating, I can explore. And, you know, there are some lines that I might cross and might not cross. The thing is, in our minds, there is an obvious difference between adultery and sex outside of marriage, sexual activity outside of marriage. In our minds, these are two things that fall into different categories. Unfortunately, biblically, it is really hard. It's not impossible, but it is really hard to differentiate between adultery and sexual activity outside of marriage. And here's why we know that. Up until this point, this is the first time in Scripture that we have a clear prohibition regarding sex and sexuality. But up until this point in Scripture, we find that sex, when it's talked about, if it's it's talked about positively in the context of marriage, and every time it's mentioned outside of the context of marriage, and this is true over the course of Scripture, it's talked about in a negative sense. It's talked about in the sense of someone that's going around God's desire to try to gain some sort of fulfillment or accomplish some sort of goal intentionally by subverting the way of God's intent. Sex outside of marriage is always painted in a negative context. And we find later, pretty much every commentator and most theologians would argue that the Ten Commandments are the root, they're the source material for all of the laws that follow. So when you find sexual laws in the rest of the Old Testament, they trace their root back to the ethic of the Ten Commandments. And we find later that there are actually laws for the people of Israel that expect and enforce sex being something that is for marriage. They make accommodations for those who are manipulated or who are um, harmed in some way so that this can be protected. Um, The law actually intentionally reserves sex for marriage. And we've got words in Scripture that 
are clearly defined as adultery, but then there are all of these catch-all words that are often translated adultery, that are used primarily in the context of adultery, but that can mean all of these other things as well. They can be used to mean any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage. In the New Testament, the most common word for that is porneia, from which we get the modern word pornography. Now, porneia is sometimes translated adultery. In Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, it's translated adultery. But throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's translated all different types of sexual sin. There's a theologian, her name's Beth Felker-Jones. She says that porneia is a sin against fidelity. It's a sin against faithfulness. So all of Scripture seems to draw its sexual ethic from this command about adultery. And this command was given to a people who did not live in a hookup culture. They lived in a culture in which the assumption about sexual activity was that it happened within the context of marriage. That marriage was the place sexual activity was intended to take place. So this command is about respecting the faithfulness, respecting the covenant of marriage. Once again, it is hard biblically to differentiate between adultery and sex outside of marriage, sexual activity outside of marriage. It seems to be the case that the story of Scripture believes that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sexual activity against the covenant of marriage. That because it is assumed that sex is intended for marriage, that any sex outside of that is actually the breaking of that covenant, whether the people participating are married to other people or not. The line between adultery and broad sexual sin is not clearly defined in Scripture. There is a significant amount of overlap. Now, I just want to acknowledge that for a lot of us, that brings some weight because we're talking about an area that many of us have guilt and shame, wounds in this area. So I just want to take a moment and say this. We live under the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. So even when we examine the truth of the situation, we live knowing that we are forgiven people who are viewed through the righteousness of Jesus, which gives us the freedom to examine the reality of our lives and our decisions without taking upon ourselves weight, shame, and guilt. Amen? So this conversation is framed, this conversation is framed by the goodness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus that is clearly expressed in the cross of Jesus through which we are all forgiven. Amen? So we have this command that creates a boundary around marriage and around sex outside of marriage because all sex outside of the bonds of marriage, the bounds of marriage, is sex against the covenant of marriage. Now I've got a question for you. What is the most valuable thing in your house? The most, va- like the most precious thing. People and pets don't count. Think about it. Um, and don't say it out loud. Just, just think about it. What's the most valuable thing? It could be an heirloom. It could be a painting. It could be like a baseball card that you've collected since you were a kid. I don't know. Um, it could be a musical instrument. You got it? You got that thing in your mind? I'm getting blank stares. You got the thing in your mind? All right, cool, cool. Um, I have a seven-year-old son who thinks that everything is a lightsaber and his hands are always sticky. Can he touch it? 
Yeah, I didn't think so. Maybe, maybe if he's sitting on the couch with gloves on and I'm sitting next to him doing most of the holding, is that okay? So there's a boundary around that precious thing, right? And we all intuitively understand that that boundary does not mean that seven-year-olds shouldn't be allowed to touch things, right? We all intuitively understand that that boundary is not about seven-year-olds being bad or being dangerous, but that that boundary is actually facing something good, that that boundary is in place because there is a good precious and beautiful thing that should be given special significance in your life so that not anything can be done to it, right? The boundary is facing a good thing. Boundaries exist because things are good, not because things are bad. They exist to protect and honor good things. Now, here's the problem. Much of Christianity in the thing that we would call purity culture has framed our boundaries around sexuality in the negative, We have used fear and shame and guilt as our primary motivation. In other words, what we have communicated is that sex is bad, sexuality is bad, sexual desires are bad, hormones are bad, your bodies are bad, but someday you get to get married, which makes it really difficult when you get married to undo like 25 years of this is bad, and then all of a sudden it be good. Listen, I have heard some absolutely awful purity sermons in my life that I am still trying to work through. I heard one time somebody preached that uh, two people are like two pieces of cardboard and sex is like glue. If you glue them together, they're stuck forever. And if you try to take them apart, everything's ruined. For the record, that did not change anything for me when I was in high school. It didn't help. I just kind of thought, well, I guess everything's already broken. So uh, I heard another preacher, another Christian teacher say that when two people are intimate, their souls touch. So that's when, when you're intimate with someone, some of their soul gets on your soul. So that's why you have to be faithful because you don't want everybody's soul on you. For the record, that's garbage. <laughs> that's not biblical. There's nothing biblical about that. And here's the thing. Fear is not an effective motivator. Fear is not an effective motivator. Fear might change our motivation for a moment, but fear does not change anything about our experience of life. Fear does not change anything about our long-term experience or motivations or desires. It just halts certain behaviors for a little while. Fear can save your life, but it cannot heal your heart. The church's perspective has been, Sex is bad, sexual desires are bad, sexual experience is bad. Interestingly enough, most of our culture right now still communicates with the negative, but what we say is restriction is bad. Do not let anyone restrict your desires. Do not let anyone tell you what you can do with your body. All desires are good, restriction is bad. So experience everything. The motivation is still based on the negative. We don't want to miss out. The church has communicated with fear of messing up, but our world communicates with fear of missing out. But Scripture communicates with a different motivation. Scripture has its eyes on a good and beautiful thing. Scripture has its eyes on the intention of marriage that we see defined in Genesis chapter 1, where the first thing we see, God creates humanity. He creates every stage of creation, and he says it's good. And then he creates humanity. He creates male and female in his image, male and female equally and fully in the image of God. 
And he says at that point, it is very good. The first word spoken about embodied humans with hormones and bodies, all of that is, it is very good. So yes, sin has broken us. Sin has changed, has, has maybe, maybe misdirected some of our desires, but the first word spoken over a human being, body and all, is it is very good. That is the first thing that this boundary protects is it points to goodness and honor and beauty and sacredness. And then we move on to Genesis chapter 2 where the, the narrator zooms in on the creation of man and woman. And here's what we find. We find that God makes a human. The Hebrew word that we translate the name Adam is the Hebrew word Adam, which is a non-gendered word that means human. It means a human. So God creates a human and puts the human in the garden and gives the human work to do. And then God says, it's not good for the human to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for the human. And then God puts the human to sleep and separates. And the first time we have gendered language in Genesis chapter 2 is when Eve is brought out of Adam. And if I'm remembering my Hebrew right, it changes from Adam to Adamah, which is a gendered word that means the male human. So we have male and female that was brought out out from one another and then verses just a few verses later it says this is why it is said that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh because that which was divided can be unified again this is where we get the traditional christian ethic that marriage is for one man and one woman because we believe that that which was divided is the only thing that can be brought together in unity that for marriage to work it has to be this one flesh union that can only come from that which was divided and god calls this good because chapter two ends with this phrase they were naked and felt no shame so there is a good and beautiful thing that is protected by a boundary. In other words, our bodies are good. Our desires are good. Our desires just don't have to be fulfilled for us to be fulfilled. The Christian sexual ethic says sex, sexual desire is a good thing, but it is a good thing that is used in a specific good way. So I honor my desires, I honor my body by using it in the way it was intended. The sexual ethic of God's kingdom says that faithfulness leads to fulfillment. Faithfulness leads to fulfillment. And there's a reason why this word faithfulness is so important. And it's because marriage is hard. Every married person knows that marriage does not equate the fulfillment of your desires. Some of your desires get fulfilled, and a lot of them you deny daily. Over the course of life, stress and joy and pain and sorrow and celebration change a person. If you're married for 10 years, that person will not have the same personality even that they did 10 years ago, at least not in the same way. They're not going to look the same. One of my favorite songwriters celebrates um, a long life in love by saying th these words. He says, wrinkles on our bodies showing love's been good to us. Life 
changes us. It changes us physically. We will go through seasons. If you're married, you will go through seasons where intimacy is easy and it's a joy. And you will go through seasons where intimacy is a struggle and it is difficult. You will go through seasons where it's hard to look at that person because you're angry or because there's pain or because there's something unspoken between you. And you will go through seasons where that person's the only thing you can think about. In other words, the only way that marriage does what marriage was created to do is through an ethic of faithfulness. Because faithfulness says, I chose you. You, I did not choose my desires expressed in you or fulfilled through you. I chose you. I chose faithfulness. A beautiful marriage is a faithful marriage in which two people say, my desires will change over my life, but my commitment to you will not change. Faithfulness tells the story of God to the world. One of my favorite theologians, Beth Felker Jones, says this. It's going to be up on the screen. She says, scripture teaches in many different ways that sex, I typed that wrong, that's my bad, that's, a, that's an error, that sex really matters. The way Christians do and don't have sex is anchored in the deepest truth about reality, and it is a witness to the reality of a God who loves and is faithful to his people. Now, since we're talking about it, we might as well talk about it. It's worth saying again. The Bible does not strongly differentiate between sex inside of marriage and, or I mean, adultery, breaking the bonds of marriage, and sex outside of marriage when someone isn't married. The Bible doesn't strongly differentiate between varying degrees of sexual sin. So porneia, from which we get the word pornography, would be applied to things like pornography things like lust, things like having a work wife that you don't really get physical with, but you allow those desires to build. Any sexual activity outside of the context of marriage would fall under that category of, of breaking faithfulness, which means for us to be faithful people, hear me again, I'm not communicating shame and guilt. What I'm communicating is that there is a more beautiful way, and for us to experience the fulfillment that comes from being faithful people, we have to be people who are willing to do the work to get pornography out of our hearts, to get lust out of our marriages, to make sure we are being committed, not just with our bodies, but with our minds and with our computers and with our thoughts and with our emotions, that we are being faithful people. Because here's the thing. If you are married, the way that you choose faithfulness to your spouse embodies the ethic of the kingdom. If you are single, the way you choose faithfulness with your body to the way of Jesus and the ideal of marriage communicates the gospel of Jesus to the world. Because if we are single, then what we do is we honor our desires. We say these desires are good. Being hungry isn't bad. Having sexual desire isn't bad. Desire is not a bad thing in and of itself, but I choose to deny that desire for the sake of faithfulness because I am choosing to believe that fulfillment comes in faithfulness to the way of Jesus, not in having an immediate desire fulfilled. I am choosing to believe that faithfulness comes, fulfillment comes in faithfulness to the way of Jesus, not in having an immediate desire fulfilled. So I choose faithfulness with my body and with my mind and with my emotions as a single person, knowing that sex is a beautiful gift that is given to the context of marriage so that if I choose marriage, I will be faithful there. And if I do not choose marriage, I will be faithful here. But it's faithfulness none the same. Just like Beth Felker Jones said, the way Christians do and don't engage in sexual activity, tells the story of a faithful God. 
In every other area of life, we are happy to celebrate the denial of desire. If I told you I was running a marathon, which should shock you if that ever came, because I would never do that, <laughs> something has happened. Like, call the doctor. Um, if I told you I was running a marathon and I said, you know what, I quit sleeping in, I get up at 4.45 every morning, um, and I eat a smoothie and I run 12 miles. You know, I would rather sleep in and eat pancakes for breakfast, but I'm not doing it. Would you think, man, that guy's really missing out? No, you would say, look, wow, look at the discipline. Look at the discipline that you've showed. You've denied a desire to gain something better. And, and I would honestly probably be, like, pretty proud of that. I'd probably be trying to tell you about the marathon I'm going to run all the time <laughs> because I've denied a desire for the sake of something better. If, if someone comes and says, I'm going to change the way I eat because I want to be healthy, I would really like to fulfill a desire for a Twinkie right now, but I have chosen to, to eat healthy, so I'm going to eat a salad. We would celebrate that, and that would be a point of pride for that person because the denial of a desire does not mean less fulfillment. We all know this, but we live in a world in which sexual expression has been so connected to identity, been so can it's an embodied thing. There's a reason why Paul says sexual sin is sin against your own body. And he encourages, encourages us extreme caution in this area. It, it's such an intimate thing that we have a hard time acknowledging any sort of denial in the area of our bodies or our sexuality. But what I want to tell you, and listen, listen, I know I sit in a privileged position. I'm married. I do not struggle with my sexual orientation. So I know that communicating a truth about faithfulness will hit me differently than it would hit someone who's single. It will land for me differently than it will land with someone who's dealing with a sexual orientation that would conflict with the biblical definition of marriage, that's dealing with gender identity issues. I understand that. But what I want to do today is to, as humbly as I can, and as gently as I can, with as much respect and honor as I can muster, say that there is a better way to that I believe that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. I believe that if you choose to trust in faithfulness, the way of God, by being willing to deny those desires, then you will find fulfillment. And I want you to know you won't be alone. There are Christian theologians and scholars and writers who write from a place of celibacy who write from a place of denying sexual desire for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus, and they consistently say, people like David Bennett, uh, who has a doctorate from Oxford and writes on Christian sexuality and, and, and Christian um, and uh, biblical studies, um, who write often about the fulfillment that comes in choosing to deny desires. It, not saying it's easy. What I'm saying is that nothing worth living is And in this way, you will find the way of fulfillment. And for those of us who are married, marriage requires denying desire as well. Because your spouse does not exist to fulfill your desires. Your spouse exists in a covenant of continually choosing one another. Paul would say it like this in the New Testament. He would say, he does not own his body, she does. And she does not own her body, he does. Which gives neither one the authority over the other one's body. You understand that? Both choose to die to self for the sake of the other. Because marriage isn't about fulfilling desire, it's about faithfulness. 
just like singleness is not about fulfilling desires, it's about fulfilling purpose. Two more things, and then we'll be done. Eugene Peterson, there's another quote that's going to be up on the screen that I think is very helpful because this can seem like an impossible endeavor to live a life of faithfulness. Even if you never cheat on your spouse, it can feel impossible to live a life of true faithfulness to another person in which you're dying to self and honoring the other person. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, said this, the life of faith has the support of an entire creation and the resources of a magnificent redemption. The Holy Spirit is in you, drawing you into faithfulness to Jesus. No no matter where you sit right now, positioned to look at faithfulness, the Holy Spirit is in you, inviting you into a beautiful life of faithfulness. And here's where this ends. The ethic of faithfulness is fully realized in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the faithful lover who is faithful when we are not. Jesus is the faithful God who never breaks faithfulness, even when he has every right to. We see on the cross the extent to which Jesus goes to maintain faithfulness. We live, just like we said at the beginning of this series, the covenant is not built on our faithfulness. It's built on God's faithfulness, which is why the first words of the Ten Commandments are, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. God is building the covenant on his consistent faithfulness from the past. So we today stand under the faithfulness of Jesus. So there are many of us today who we hear something like this, and it brings up guilt and shame from the past. And we wonder if we've already broken too much, if we've already gone too far, if maybe faithfulness is not on the table for for us. But what I want you to know is that because of the faithfulness of Jesus, you are offered forgiveness and mercy and invited into a life of faithfulness. And if you mess up tomorrow, you are offered forgiveness and mercy and invited into a life of faithfulness. And if the next day you fail, you're offered forgiveness and mercy and invited into a life of faithfulness. Because we live under the faithfulness of Jesus. So today, we do not operate. We lay down our fear and our shame and guilt so that we can take upon ourselves the faithfulness of Jesus and respond to his invitation. Single or married, no matter what stage we find ourselves in life, we receive the forgiveness of Jesus so that we can respond, whatever that looks like for us, to the invitation of the faithfulness of Jesus. God, we love you. As we sit under the weight of a difficult topic, we ask that you would remind us first and foremost of your faithfulness and your love. We ask that your love would eradicate fear and shame and guilt so that we can look at ourselves the way you look at us, which is with love and honor through the lens of your cross and we can see the way you empower us to a life of faithfulness. God, I ask that we would be people motivated to tell the story of your faithfulness by living lives of faithfulness as faithful single people, faithful married people, faithful celibate people, faithful newlyweds, faithful people with 50 years of faithfulness.